One likes to believe in the freedom of music. Welcome, everybody, to the Book Exchange podcast. And that lyric comes from the great song that you just heard there called The Spirit of Radio by my favorite rock band in the world, Rush. Um, wonderful intro to our episode today. And uh, as I bring in my brother, John, it just happens to to allow us a smooth transition from, if listeners are paying attention, the last episode was episode 32, Books on Freedom, to this episode that we're kicking off for you now. This is episode 33 and a third. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, books about music. So, John, welcome from Easton, Maryland. Thanks, dude. Yeah. Um, looking forward to this one. This is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, connection between uh, the last episode and that lyric and, and this episode. So let's jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. We've been planning this one for a while. We came up with this idea a while ago, but we held it for to do the little play on the, the old records, uh, 33 and a third revolutions per minute. I think that's what that is. So this is uh, this is the Book Exchange podcast, friends, and we we welcome you back to another episode. We're very excited. We have a jam packed episode today about books about music, and we're going to take it in many different directions. As uh, John, as we've been doing for the last several episodes, we've been queuing up some ideas, and then between the two of us, your twin Virgils, that you said way back in episode one, we send it off going off into many different. Uh, Many different uh, tangents. That's right, man, and, and that's what we do here. And and you're right. <laughs> we did say that all the way all the way back in episode one. So nice callback there. But yeah, this is. I think I've mentioned before. We've had a list of topics. We always have a list of topics that's been running since the beginning of the show. This one has been on it. I think almost since the very beginning. But uh, for one reason or another, we put it off, and then it just happened to align episode thirty three here. So, yeah, I think this is going to be and it's going to be another wild and eclectic one, which has become our trademark, you know, as, as you would say, expect the unexpected. So <laughs> I think that's definitely going to be the nature of this discussion. So, yeah, and we're going to. I'm sorry, I cut off the end there. What did you say? I just said should be fun. It is going to be fun. I'm very excited to do this, guys. It's going to be a lot of interesting material today. So we have to fit a lot in. And uh, we'll see how long it goes, but we're, we are going to jump right into it. And what I'm going to do here, John, um, is I'm going to make a real quick administrative note right now. And then we'll do a quick, and it's going to be quick, and you know why, um, touch on what we're reading right now. Then we'll take a break, and we'll get get right back into it. And then I'll, I'll do a little bit of setup on the music category, but then there's not much needed there, and then we'll just we'll just dive right in. So... Uh, John, do you have anything you want to say before I make a quick administrative note? No, I don't think so. Let, go right ahead. Okay. So I'm going to make a similar note. I, I hope I hope my co-host doesn't mind. I'm going to make a similar note that we've made in the past. Um, I would like, I would just, but I'm going to put a little spin on it. Um, I'd just like to remind people of our email address to send us some uh, feedback on the show. That's book exchange twins, all one word book exchange with an X twins at gmail.com now I, I we've we've put it out there plenty of times and people can use it if they want to i was just going to make a quick note to anybody who um i'm talking to our regular listeners john now people that know us or communicate with us in some way if anybody has some thoughts on the last few episodes or wants to make some comments about 
this podcast, I would ask you as a favor or encourage you to do it in the form of email. And the reason why is because I, I would like to see John, and I think that I can speak for you here too. Um, I would like to see how it would, you know, vary the format a little. Um, if we get an email or two and we, and we read it on the, on the show, and then we, we can react to that email on the show. So if anybody is inclined to give us some feedback or let us know what they think, try using the email address. And that's what I want to say. Anything you want to add? No, I, I think that's a great idea. You know, we're always looking for ways to shuffle it up a little bit. And uh, if we have some feedback we can read on the air and discuss, it just might, might make for a little variety, which is uh, a win for everybody. So I think that's a good idea. Yeah, we do get feedback on the show, but uh, we don't get a lot through the channels that we've mentioned. That's fine. We don't, No worries there. It just might make for an interesting, uh, um, you know, variance on the show format. So that's my plug for that. And, uh, John, as I alluded to, uh, we can talk pretty quickly about what we're reading right now, because I believe, unless you've really accelerated, I believe we both happen to be reading the same thing. And that might come up again at the end of the show when we do a teaser. That's right. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty, so, pretty rare. We're both reading the same book at the same time. Uh, but in this case, it makes sense. Yeah. Why don't you just mention it really quick? And then, and then maybe when we tease the next episode, we can, we can tease it with a, a comment or two briefly, but what, what's the book and, and what does that have to do with? All right. So the book we're both reading simultaneously as it happens is uh, the novel, a prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. I, one of his best known books, you know, I guess there's, there could be an argument made that his most famous book uh, is The World According to Garp or maybe The Cider House Rules, but this one would be in the conversation for sure. And uh, it's a book that's been, you know, kind of loved and discussed for a long time, since the 80s. And, but I've never read it. Judy's read it once, I think pretty close to the time that it came out. You can correct me if you're wrong. If I'm yeah, wrong, yeah. <laughs> you can correct me if you're wrong. That's it. That I may have to save that as the title for my memoir or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm reading it for the first time. Jude's reading it, I believe, for the second time, and uh, we're we're both reading it in preparation for a future podcast, which is episode which is coming up. So we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we might make a few teaser comments, literally teaser comments later on. But yeah, that's what we're reading. Prayer for Owen Meany, the novel from 1989 by John Irving. <clears throat> so, uh, John, let's pause for our quick break here. This may be a record. You know how quick we got the admin out of the way. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and then we'll dive in. I'll do a little bit of setup and then I'm going to cue you up first just to uh, just to break break the suspense there. OK. OK, that's fine. Yep. All right. Quick break. Okay, spin the record, Mr. DJ. It's time to 
time to get into our discussion about books on music. And uh, so here's how here's where I'm coming from. And I'll give you a chance to maybe set it up briefly from your end, John. Um, so we're going to go in many different directions. And uh, I don't want to spoil what those are yet. But uh, just from my side, you know, I, we tend to we tend to prepare a little bit differently. I usually just kind of choose my list of sort of finalists that I want to discuss and sort of hope that I get my points across in general through those. And then at the end, I, I tend to, you know, list a few honorable mentions or books that didn't quite make it to the full discussion. And John, uh, I'll let you talk in a second, but you, you tend to go in categories or sort of categories, if you will, uh, different groups. So for me, what I've done this time, the only change I'm going to make, I'm, I'm pretty solid on my, on my lineup, I've chosen three books that I want to talk about. I'll try to do it relatively quickly. You know, we know how that goes. And then I do want to have, I have kind of an extra credit or, uh, you know, 3.2 if, if you want. Um, there's a short story that I'd like to bring, bring up in the episode, which I consider one of my main quote unquote selections. And so I will talk about it a little, but I, I do want to hit a short story. And then I'm, because of that, I'm going to issue picking, talking at all about any books that, I, you know, thought of and didn't mention today. And what's your approach going to be? And if you want, John, you can say your approach and then just launch right into book number one or however you want to do it. All right. Well, yeah, I'll do that. Why not? Um, I, you know, my approach, I didn't really have an approach. I just started, I did what I always did do. And, um, and it's just write down books that come to mind or look at my shelf and remember books that I've read that might have to do with you know, the broad category we're discussing. Um, and some, a lot of times, you're right, a lot of times from that process, you know, categories or, or some kind of uh, uh, division will emerge. Um, but not this time. I just kind of have sort of an eclectic pile this time, I must say. Um, but just, just for variety's sake, I am going to start, normally I kind of mention stuff at the end uh, that are just an honorable mention, but I'm going to start with a few books that I did not get to. Um, either I haven't read at all, or I didn't get a chance to reread um, that. I really wish I did for this list. So the other thing I'll just say uh, is that, you know, books about music. I mean, as usual for us, pretty really broad category. And if you're into a particular type of music, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of thousands, there's thousands of titles that you could choose from for any particular genre or type of music. I mean, if you're a jazz guy, you know, that's a bottomless well. If you're a folk music guy, that's a bottomless well, et cetera, classical. So I didn't approach it from that point of view of like genre or anything like that. Um, I think as usual, and I think this, this kind of speaks for both of us, we're sort of, we, whether we consciously say this or not, I think we like to go for variety, you know? So we, we try to bring, you know, bring, selections in that come from different directions or may cover the topic from one angle or another. And that can be fiction or nonfiction, or that can be, you know, memoir or biography or whatever. So I think that's kind of, I know that's, that sort of, if I have any approach, it's that, you know, trying to bring different types of books to the, you know, into the discussion. Some may be really well known, others may be not as well known. So that's really the only those are really the only guiding points I had. I do, you know, I have a couple of books on my shelf that I really wish I had gotten to for this list. I'll just kind of mention them briefly. One is, 
kind of a science book, really. It's written by the great, you know, neuroscientist and author Oliver Sacks. He has a book called Musicophilia, which is about specifically about, you know, music and the way it impacts the human brain. And uh, that's a book our old man read, by the way. Um, I know he really enjoyed it. Um, my son actually read it um, and he enjoyed it, but I didn't get a chance to read it for this list, but I, I feel it's worth at least a mention. And um, for anybody who's interested in that topic, you know, that's probably one of the go-to books. Another one is a, uh, is a really thick and long biography that he Johnny there. Yeah, apologize for that, folks. Little technical difficulty there, but I think I was uh, I was talking about one of the books that I did not get a chance to read, and it's a it's a big, thick biography of Beethoven called Beethoven: Anguish and Triumph. Oh yeah, by a writer named I'm going to go with Jan Swafford. It might be Jan. I don't know. Um, but anyway, that's uh, I, I we kind of grew up in a way, listening to classical music because our parents really liked it. Uh, heard lots of Beethoven in our lives growing up. And so, but I know he has a really interesting and fascinating life story. And I, I think it would have been interesting to kind of dive into the, the life of at least one giant of the classical world. I just didn't get a chance to do it. Um, so I just wanted to mention those two books because I, I definitely would have read them if I had more time. Yeah, so that, and you... And uh, John, just to interrupt, you made a good point at the very beginning. Just uh, this is this is sort of talking, making the sausage as we're live here. But maybe maybe we ought to call this episode our favorite our our favorite books on music, because you just made an There's so many there's so many genres and categories that you know inevitably, you know, so many are going to be left out. So this is really sort of a focus on our own. Um, I mean, it goes a lot of different directions. It's not, it's not only just our main tastes, but it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that won't be included here. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Um, so, okay. My, the first book I'd like to discuss might be the most quote unquote academic of the books that I, that I have. And it really, it kind of took me into a whole genre and world of music that I was not that familiar with. Um, but when I say academic, it's not, uh, it doesn't read like an academic, you know, treatise at all, but it uh, is probably the most, uh, I don't know, let's say sociological or ethnographic book that of all the ones that I'm going to mention today. And it's a book called The Land Where the... And it was written by Alan Lomax, wow. who is an ethnomusicologist. I think he may be passed away now, um, but he basically devoted most of his professional life to going around, not just in the America, but uh, in Europe as well and in other countries and recording local music and kind of capturing music that hadn't been captured before or focusing on, you know, lesser known types of music around the world. But he, he made a very famous trip all the way back in the 1930s and 40s, all across the American South basically across the Mississippi Delta. And his aim was, and he was working in conjunction with the Library of Congress. His father had a similar job. I can't remember exactly what his father did, but he was sort of, I know he was sort of walking in the footsteps of his father. Alan Lomax described himself as a quote, song hunter. And he went on this very long trip and with, with a, <laughs> at what we might consider a primitive, you know, recording apparatus. And he, 
basically went all through the American South recording blues songs. And he, on that trip, it's because of Alan Lomax on this very famous trip that he took. And we still have the recordings that he was among the very first people ever to record artists that most of us, anybody into music would have at least heard of one name like by the Lead Belly, Muddy Waters, a famous blues artist named Fred McDowell, and many others. These were their debut recordings. So he kind of introduced uh, a lot of these now, you know, world famous blues artists to the world in this trip that he took. And there's a hilarious on the uh, blurb, one of the blurbs on the book I have, The Land Where the Blues Began. It's this uh, you know, the big, thick book that kind of chronicles his whole trip. Um, I think it, it won a, what did it win? It won, um, it came out in 1983 or 92 or 93. And it was the winner of the 1993 National Book Critics Circle Award. So it was an award-winning book. Uh, one, of the, one of the quotes on the back says, if not for Alan Lomax, Few people would have heard Tom Dooley or Goodnight Irene and Bob Zimmerman might be singing feelings at holiday inns around Hibbing, Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this particular trip and the influence, I mean, it was very important. So he brought and and the resulting book. Now, I read it many, I'm going to say 10 or 12 years ago. So it's hard for me to really remember it. I'm not going to get into great detail about it just because of my memory is so bad, but this was, this was a, is just a fascinating kind of chronicle of the American South, particularly during the Jim Crow years and how a very potent form of music literally kind of, you know, came up out of the ground and evolved through, you know, prisons, chain gangs, enslaved, you know, people and how they, it gets very deeply into the kind of the spiritual roots of this music. Um, and he's just interviewing, as I say, some artists are quite famous now. Others are completely obscure. Um, lots of song lyrics and lots of really, oh man, really like dark and disturbing kind of uh, revelations really and memories of what these people went through during the, these years and how they converted them into music literally in many cases literally just to survive i mean um there's a really fascinating passage that i marked just to give you a flavor for the book um where he's talking about and it reminded me of the opening scenes of oh brother where art thou dude when you yeah and i'm sure this was not you know by accident when he's kind of focused on the uh there's a chain gang working and they're um singing blues music as they're working mm-hmm. <laughs> Of course, they didn't make that up. You know, that comes from a long tradition. But this is a passage that describes something similar. But just gives you a flavor for for what this, how rich this book is, and, and also the writing as well. And I'm, I realize I'm wrenching it out of context, but I just want to give you and our listeners a flavor. So there's a chain gang working literally out in the, the Delta heat. All this time, their foreman had not said a word to them. They had carried out this complex operation entirely on their own. And they're, I think they're laying railroad track. Um, I might be wrong about that, but uh, entirely on their own, efficiently and speedily, not in silence, in white style, but noisily, with joking, singing, laboring like demons in the thick heat of the pine woods, where I could hardly venture on horseback. 
I realized that this was how the heavy work of the Deep South had all been done, by black labor, not by brute force in any sense, but by skilled craftsmen thriving in the semi-tropical heat. As they drove the bright steel rails into this southern forest, they put together multiple strands of melody and movement in conformity with the highest canons of black style, creating an African-American ballet on the spot. Thus they and other black railroad men transformed railroad building into a rhythmic creation that belonged to them and that sang a progress in African style. And that's the kind of fascinating passage you get through this book. It's a really interesting deep dive into literally what the title says, you know, how and where the blues began and how this very well known and well-traveled form of music kind of emerged out of, out of, you know, astonishing human struggle. So it's a fascinating book. Um, it's part musicology and part travelogue. And I, you know, I would highly recommend it. So that's my first pick uh, the land where the blues began by Alan Lomax. And by the way, there's a documentary film that he made in conjunction with this project in 1979, written and directed by Alan Lomax. And it's available for free on the internet. You can find it. It's about an hour long and uh, it's really a fascinating watch. So little, little multimedia action for our listeners there if they're interested. Yeah. Yeah. What a really fascinating opening choice that is, John. Um, so he, so let me see if I have this right. He did, he made the travels. He took, he took the, took the journey that led to the book in the, you said the thirties and forties. Is that yeah. right? Yep. And then the documentary came out in 79 and the book didn't come out till the early nineties. Is that correct? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that just shows number one, how deep and how long uh, Mr. Lomax really, you know, worked on this and, and how deeply he was invested in, you know, investigating this music and where it came from and stuff. But it's just, yeah, I remember when you were reading that like 10 or 12 years ago and I was like, <laughs> I was pretty impressed at the time. And uh, I always thought, man, that's a book I should take on sometime if I ever find find it. I haven't read it myself, but just kind of like, you know, I mean, it might be the just sort of the ultimate example of like, you know, art and beauty being created out of struggle, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and also just as a literary work, just for somebody to, that's the kind of topic that, you know, sometimes I'll think of a subject you know, and I, I'll sort of say to myself, man, I, I hope there's somebody brave and bold out there who's really sort of undertook it upon themselves to to do kind of a definitive work on this. And then you look at and if it, if you were if if it was the blues you were thinking of that, you would probably run into this book. You did a little research and then other times you you're kind of hoping a book is out there and nobody has really had the, the muscle or the guts to take it on. But that's just uh, what a what a monumental literary project as well, as well as a cultural one. I mean, that's just a great, that's a great kickoff. I mean, it's gotta be fascinating. Yeah. You would, you would definitely love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like a tour of the American South at that time too. And, and you're right, just to wrap it up. Um, this was his life's work. I mean, he did go to Europe and record some other folk music there, but his primary focus was kind of bringing this music to the masses in a way. And he went with the intent of capturing, you know, the music and archiving it so that it was preserved. So, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating book for sure. I know you, you would appreciate it if you ever found the time to work it in. 
Yeah, great one. What a service that uh, Alan Lomax did to humankind, you know, just by taking that on with his life. You know, that's a real legacy. Yeah. <clears throat> so, okay, well, that it, it makes an interesting transition because uh, two out of three of my books um, are actually memoirs written by actual musicians. And the, the first one I want to talk about was written by Mr. Bob Zimmerman from Hemming, Minnesota. <laughs> Hemming, Minnesota. <laughs> there you go. So the first book I want to talk about is Chronicles. And uh, uh, Robert Zimmerman, of course, is better known to the world as Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan uh, uh, has written a few books, um, but spaced out over many, many decades. And, of course, he is, uh, you know, internationally renowned and a, a living legend. He just recently turned 80 years old. Uh, I think it was in May he turned 80 years old. Yeah. And um, he's the, the world renowned folk singer, of course. And he is the only songwriter in the history of literature, at least in the modern era, to be awarded the Nobel Prize for literature, strictly for songwriting, even though he does have a couple of books. So um, but Bob Dylan came out with this memoir and I don't have to, you know, explain him or try to, you know, <laughs> I'm not the guy to sort of interpret his music, but everybody kind of knows who he is, of course. But he wrote a memoir in the early 2000s, came out in 2004, called Chronicles. Interestingly, Chronicles Volume 1, of course, I'm really hoping there's a Volume 2. But mm -hmm. with, with Bob Dylan, you know, <laughs> all bets are off. Just because he called it Chronicles Volume 1 does not mean there's going to be a Chronicles Volume 2, that's for sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember when he came out, when this book came out, it was sort of a dropped out of nowhere in the publishing world. It was obviously a major event because of how famous his songs and songwriting is and just his style with the English language, you know, in songs in particular, but also in interviews um, throughout his career, he's been a very sort of enigmatic kind of troubadour and you never know. And I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but you never know exactly what he's saying, but it, it still kind of rings with profundity somehow, you know, <laughs> and, and right. he's a, did you want to say something? No, I just said right. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I, you know, I'm a fan of his music, but I'm in no way a connoisseur. There's, there's millions of people that are much more dedicated than I am. But I am a big fan of his music. And, uh, and so are you, John. And, and, you know, so many of our favorite artists sort of stood on his shoulders as well because he's been so influential around the world. But what I want to say about this book, this book really stood out to me when I read it back when it came out. I was just too curious and I wanted to see how Bob Dylan would sort of interpret his own life journey because I knew it was going to be unique and interesting. And it certainly is. And then but then I started to learn a little bit about the book before I read it. And I found out that he had taken not surprisingly, he had taken very sort of an avant garde kind of approach to talking about his own life. So it wasn't it was not a straight up autobiography by any means. And it was also not really lengthy. I think it comes in under, you know, it's somewhere around 200 pages, but you would not, you know, talk about expect the unexpected. You don't, you don't know what to expect with Bob Dylan. And this book is very consistent with that. Like, you know, it, it may not be what you think when you, most musicians or, you know, celebrities at all, write A memoir, they kind of just take it straight. And sometimes they have a ghostwriter and they just kind of, you know, tell the story of their life. Well, Bob, does, Bob Dylan doesn't play it that way. No. So in this book, what he, what he does, which I think is really fascinating, and that's what I want to convey to people listening who may not have read the book, 
because it was very popular. Um, what he does is he takes just instead of like doing a straight up approach to his entire life, he takes five little seasons from his life and he writes about them in five portions of the book. I think it's five it might be four, but I think it's five. And, you know, they're no more than like, you know, 40 or 50 pages. And, and he just kind of drops you into one part of his career and then pulls you out and then goes to another one. And so it just kind of jumps around and he offers no kind of explanation or rhyme or reason for doing that. Um, and as soon as he, so as soon as he does that in the first portion of the book, the first portion of the book is early in his career, but it eschews his entire childhood. You know, it just, and, and he literally, he gets dropped off on a corner in New York city in the mm -hmm. early sixties in the cold, in winter cold. And that's where the book starts. He's just, he's come from Minnesota and his whole childhood is behind him. And he's sort of, sort of flown the coop from everything that he had known before. And he just drops into the middle of the village and he kind of picks it up from there, just kind of wandering around and trying to get gigs, you know, and mm -hmm. very early in the book, he's sat down across the way, across a desk from, uh, um, well, first he sits across the desk from this guy, John Hammond, who discovered him. And then he went on to discover Bruce Springsteen as well. Famous man in the music industry. But John Hammond kind of liked him and he and he said, we're going to have you do a record with us. And this is the very beginning of the book. So I want you to go down and talk to our PR man or what or, you know, somebody from the record company. And so he brings him down and he sits him across from the PR guy. And then the guy starts asking questions. And Bob Dylan uh, explains that he answers his questions and he's telling complete falsehoods. Like the guy says, where are you from? And tell me about your childhood. Dylan says, well, I'm, I'm from Illinois, you know, and I, I, you know, traveled around on a rail car. You know, he just starts making things up immediately, you know. <laughs> about his life and and he doesn't and the book doesn't explain at all why he does that or what his reasoning is he just says that he started you know giving the guy information that wasn't really accurate and it kind of goes from there and and you know it it jumps around as i said um it it covers um the making of two relatively famous bob dylan albums out of all the famous bob dylan albums um, I don't know why he settled on these. There's one section called New Morning, where he talks about an album called New Morning from the early 70s. Some of the musicians he worked with on that album. And then he jumps to the 80s in the city of New Orleans, where he was making kind of what people consider almost a gospel record called uh, Oh Mercy, which I know you're a big fan of, John. Yeah. And, and so am I. And he talks about the making of that with a producer named Daniel Lenoir, who worked with U2 and the Joshua Tree and all that kind of business. And he talks about that record. But then he goes back to the village in his early days and there's a couple and uh, there's one whole section about him trying to deal with his fame and notoriety when he had small children and just trying to deal with people kind of feeling like that they knew him or could approach him at, you know at any time and the way he sort of felt about that and but the one the one thing i really want to say about the book and i i won't I want to read a small passage and I, I won't go too much further than that is the style in which it's written, which you might need to have some familiarity with his lyrics. And, and I touched on it earlier, like, you know, his song lyrics are, you can pick almost any line almost on almost any one of his songs. And it, they somehow, John, I, I've never been able to figure this out. You and I have talked about this over and over again. It'll seem to be sort of fraught with meaning, but you don't really know what he's talking about, you know? <laughs> And, right. and the, the, his pro style, incredibly, I think this is amazing, is very similar. So the book is filled with passages where he talks about 
characters that he's met or music that he's made or what his conception of music um, or just of life in general. And it's written in this very mysterious and sort of profound but uh, enigmatic manner. So anyway, here's the passage. It's uh, set. It's a passage set in New York City early in Bob Dylan's career. And he's just talking about a moment he had in the city at the time. New York City was cold, muffled and mysterious, the capital of the world. On 7th Avenue, I passed the building where Walt Whitman had lived and worked. I paused momentarily, imagining him printing away and singing the true song of his soul. I had stood outside of Poe's house on 3rd Street, too, and had done the same thing, staring mournfully up at the windows. The city was like some uncarved block without any name or shape, and it showed no favoritism. Everything was always new, always changing. It was never the same old crowd upon the streets. I crossed over from Hudson to Spring, past a garbage can loaded with bricks, stopped into a coffee shop. The waitress at the lunch counter wore a close-fitting suede blouse. It outlined the well-rounded lines of her body. She had blue-black hair covered with a kerchief, and piercing blue eyes, clear stenciled eyebrows. I was wishing she would pin a rose on me. She poured the steaming coffee, and I turned back toward the street window. The whole city was dangling in front of my nose. I had a vivid idea of where everything was. The future was nothing to worry about. It was awfully close. Okay, John, so you can tell that's the that's the passage. You can tell there that it's like there's a kind of a mysterious quality to it, like I've been talking about. Not really totally clear um, what Bob Dylan is saying, but there's also a poetry to it and kind of a mystery. And if anybody listening to this was a fan of that passage, the whole book is crammed with stuff like that, and I just found it really fascinating. So that's my first pick. I also think I have my personal opinion is that Bob Dylan was a really worthy recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature. So Chronicles is the name of the book, volume one. And now I'll kick it over to you for your next pick. Yeah, that uh, it's, it's, you could say a lot in response to even that passage or the book Chronicles. I mean, I read it too. It's been a long time, but you remind just hearing you talk about it recently and you read that passage reminds me of you don't you don't quite know when you're I mean it sounds like fiction almost even though it's supposed to be nonfiction it has like almost a yeah. fiction or a poetic quality to it or a mythic quality to it like the way he writes about New York City for example it's like you know that's probably not what he was thinking when he first encountered New York City but it has it just kind of is filtered through his sort of voice and his sensibility so that's kind of the whole book is like that it's like you know in your mind that it's supposed to be this nonfiction account, but it really kind of feels like somewhere in between. That's number one. But, you know, as you mentioned, he's always, you know, his interviews and stuff have always had that quality too. You know, like, right. like it's somewhere between fiction and nonfiction, you know? So there's that. Yeah. And then um, it, it's interesting early on there, how he, how he sort of connects himself, even if, I'm sure it's not an accident, but he sort of connects himself to people like Walt Whitman and uh, Edgar Allan Poe and the kind of New York City's literary history. I don't think he's saying like, oh, I belong in that company either now or immediately as soon as I got there. But he sees himself sort of in that tradition somehow, which is kind of interesting or else he wouldn't make that connection, you know. So 
there's lots of interesting that that book is really it, it's unlike any other you know uh popular musician's memoir that you're going to read that's for sure yeah it's really more than meets the eye but yeah, um it's mysterious like he is that's really as you said that's really the only way you can describe it yeah yeah so anyway uh what's your next pick so my next pick is in there's a series of books you know about it and some people who listening may know about it um and it's 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 published under the imprint of strangely enough of 33 and a third <laughs> like the title of this episode there's a series <laughs> of short books it's published by Bloomsbury Press I think and they and what they are are basically short little short you know paperbacks that are kind of appreciations of great albums across the year, kind of great popular albums, you know, rock, folk, or hip-hop, or whatever. And there's a whole series, you can look it up, there's been a whole series of them. Um, and, you know, from albums from Bruce Springsteen, or the Rolling Stones, or, uh, you know, Steely Dan, or Prince, or whatever. There's a whole series. Um, I've read a few of them. They tend to, what they tend to be are like book-length essays, kind of almost like think pieces, kind of you know, deconstructing the record, whatever it might be, you know, track by track. And sometimes they have sort of a personal touch that why the album meant so much to the person who's writing it. In some cases, it's another musician or artist who's writing the book. But there's only one in this series that I've ever read that is actually, it's an appreciation of an album, but it's a fiction piece. And that book is written by John Darneal who's someone who has come up on this show before. John Darneal is the, is the lead songwriter and singer and kind of main creating, creative force behind uh, a well-known indie band called the Mountain Goats. And he's a very literary figure. I mean, he's, he's known for his interesting and, uh, you know, literary, for, for lack of a better word, lyrics. Um, and also for his, uh, you know, how prolific he is. I mean, I think the Mountain Goats have put out three albums in the past year <laughs> you know they were very very yeah. prolific during the pandemic um and he's always it's always been kind of a project for him personally but he has a band with him and anyway but john Darnielle is also a pretty accomplished novelist i think at least one of his novels has come up on this podcast before called wolf and white van he has another novel called um it's escaping me what's what's the name of the second album do you remember uh universal harvester is the second album. Yeah. It's in, Se second book. Second novel. And he has many, many albums. But anyway, and they're both really, I found them both to be really interesting and good books. He's, he's an excellent writer, both as a lyricist and, and in prose. Well, he, he wrote a short book for this series, this 33 and a third series. And it was, it's an appreciation of the Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath 1971 album, Master of Reality. So, <laughs> If you're a fan, I'm a fan of John Darnielle's writing and his music. So, but if you're a fan of John Darnielle in any way, you know that he has this long-standing appreciation for heavy metal and like dark metal music, you know. And he, he constantly talks about it on social media, and he's talked about it in interviews and such. But um, so it's not a huge surprise that he would decide to write for this series on a Black Sabbath album, a classic Black Sabbath album. Um, but it's the way that he does it that makes it really memorable. I, I'm not highlighting this book because it's kind of unique in that series. I'm highlighting this book because I, I thought it was actually quite a moving and interesting book in and of itself. So, and I think that you gave this to me. I think what you, you gave me both the 
if I remember correctly. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, I did like a little media combo. That's right. Yeah, it's because we're both fans of John Darnielle. And, um, you know, I, I heard a couple of the songs from Master of Reality. There's one called Sweet Leaf that a lot of people might know. There's a few others that people might recognize. Children of the Grave, you know. It's like early British heavy metal, you know. Um, and it's, of course, famously the front man for Black Sabbath was a young Ozzy Osbourne. Um, but real quick, what, what John Darneal does is John Darneal in his personal life, before he ever made it as a musician, he worked as a, a nurse or he worked as part of a, a, a youth home for psychiatrically troubled teenage boys. So he was a social worker. Uh, in his past life. And he has drawn from this experience many times, both in his music and even uh, at least one of his novels. Um, so what he does, instead of like doing this, you know, the typical album dissection, you know, track by track kind of thing, he invents a character who is a young, who is a very troubled teen who is living in a, a psychiatric facility. I want to say it's in, well, I'm not sure he says where it is. No, it's in, in Southern California. And um, he has been in and out of this psychiatric uh, hospital. And on this, it is most recent, he's been asked by somebody who's caring for him to, to write in a journal. So he starts writing in a journal and most of the journals in the beginning is sort of expletive laden. He's telling all his people who care for him to F off. And, but then he just starts kind of writing. And one thing that's happened is they, you know, he's kind of ranting and very angry about a lot of things that have happened to him, but they've taken away all of his tapes. And one of his tapes is Master of Reality by Black Sabbath. So he decides to use this journal to try to explain why the album Black, Master of Reality by Black Sabbath means so much to him and is so important to him. And so he kind of does this sort of track by track dissection of the album, but it's not done in a kind of like a think piece essay kind of way. It's done in this fictional setting and what you actually end up getting is both an, an interesting kind of look at the whole record, but you also get this very empathetic, very sad, very heartbreaking kind of uh, story and portrayal of this troubled teen who has had a lot of things happen in his life that have been really, really negative. And he's really uh, just a kid who's struggling with his purpose in the world. And, you know, it's kind of this very interesting and moving expression of how this heavy metal music sort of speaks to him and is one of the only sources of, um, it's not really, you wouldn't call it joy per se, but at one point he says, you know, this, this, this album, he says a couple of things, this album, you know, provides me with anger and, and, you know, I've had tons of sadness in my life, but sometimes you just want something that can provoke anger. And this album does that for me. But in another way, he also says, at one point, I remember there's a line, he says, uh, this album makes me feel young and stupid in all the right ways. <laughs> it's got tons of uh, really interesting passages. And it's, it's actually, like I said, it's, it's really become this moving portrayal of a, of, a, of a young person. It's kind of an exercise in empathy, somebody who's been in and out of one of these homes. But it also is, is this really interesting look at this album, which is very strange. It has all these kind of weird tracks. And, you know, it's it, like there's one there's one song on the album that, you know, talks a lot about the devil. But you actually realize that um, 
you know, through the kind of lyrics and the narration of the song, you know, it's warning you about, you know, being in league with the devil. And there's one song, like blatantly a Christian song for some reason in the middle of the Black Sabbath album, which is also very John Darnielle as well. Um, but it's just a really interesting, first of all, it's unique in the series, you know, that I think is really interesting, but I, I found it to be a very powerful kind of exercise in empathy. Um, you know, if you're not interested in heavy metal music at all, or don't find it funny, like I do, you know, I both like it, but I also find it funny. And there's tons of humor in this book too. Um, but uh, as a portrait of a troubled teen and kind of um, understanding what, what a young person goes through is having psychological trouble. It's pretty, it's pretty profound. So uh, I really appreciated this book when I read it. I don't think you ever read it, did you? No, I've read other books in a series, but not that. Yeah, well, there is no other book in this series that I know of that's anything like this one. But um, if you've read any of John Darnielle's other novels, you would recognize the voice here in this one. But, you know, he's just really good at being both funny and heartbreaking at the same time. And uh, it's just really believable. It's just a really believable portrait. And it kind of breaks your heart while also kind of like, you know, <laughs> glorying in the in the ridiculousness of like, you know, dark metal. I mean, there's this one passage. I know you're going to howl when you hear this. Let me see if I can find it um, real quick. And if it takes too long, I won't. Yeah. Well, he's talking about how this one this one song kind of shows up, and it's basically a Christian song in the middle of the album for some reason. Um, but uh, let's see. It, it's just he's funny. It's so funny. I'm talking about Ozzy Osbourne. He says Ozzy always says yeah when he gets to a totally intense part of the song. He still does this today in his solo stuff. When Ozzy says, yeah, it is like hallelujah for Ozzy fans or the part of the church where the priest says, let us pray. You know, <laughs> it's so funny. If you've ever, if you have, we'll get into this later, but if you have any background with like heavy metal, you can't help but laugh and stuff like that. But anyway, that's my second pick, a really different, different book than my first one for sure. But uh, I think it's a standout in that series. And I think John Darnielle is a really talented writer. Well, it's cool the way this is working out because my second pick is a work of fiction also. But we're going we're gonna to get to that in a minute. But, yeah. Well, that's John Darnielle, John, what you're describing. You know, he, he it's definitely in his writing, you know, in the broad sense as a, as a songwriter. You know, there's a lot of profundity. It's like three things. There's profundity, there's darkness, and there's humor, you know. And right. that's in a lot of his material, sometimes all three at once. Um, you know, you listen to the, his famous song, the, the what was it, the last the last famous death metal band from Texas or what? I, I don't remember. The, I was just thinking of that. The best ever death metal band from Denton, I think it's called. Yeah, or Denton, Texas. Right. Just look that up and listen to that. You'll know what we're talking about with John Darnielle. You know, um, it's just an acoustic track, but it's hilarious and, and uh, pretty profound when you listen to it a few times, but you're right though. There's a very serious side to John Darnielle's work. Cause he worked with troubled children and he had, I think he survived an abusive relationship when he was growing up and, and right. that filters his way into his work as well. And fortunately I would say for listeners and the artistic community in general, it's, it's created a very compassionate voice in John Darnielle, you know? So he has, He's a he's a very good writer and he writes with a lot of beauty, but he also he's really hard forward. He has a, a care for humanity 
and he has some views which he expresses on Twitter and whatnot that I don't necessarily agree with, but his his humanity and compassion for humanity is what comes out of all his work. So that's a really that's a really cool example, a really funny one, and a really interesting one. I didn't know that you were going to go there with this, so uh, that's really cool. Yeah, and it's good that you brought up that song because that song, if you recall, you know, at, at the end of that song, it basically repeats. You know, it becomes this anthem, and he's just repeating "Hail Satan, Hail Satan." Right. And when they play it in concert, everybody sings that. But it's not. It's not. That sounds absurd and evil. But somehow, in the in the context of that song, it almost has the opposite effect. It's like it's like a rallying cry to get behind this kid in the song who's been you know, gone through some difficult stuff and he's just trying to find a release through music. And you like find, you almost find yourself singing along, you know, just cause you're rooting for this kid. And that's the way this book is. Totally. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. I mean, he, he has this way of sort of creating a different meaning for some of these things that you won't, that you don't find elsewhere. You know, really interesting writer, John Darnielle. Yeah. Um, so I'll transition to my next book. Uh, mine is also a novel, and it's really, this is really I was excited to talk about this one because this is really going way outside the purview in a way. But I'm going to try to explain in this fairly short period of time why I think it works. Um, and the reason why I chose it, it just it's just lingered in my memory. So it's a no, it's a novel called Amsterdam, and it was written by a British novelist named Ian McEwan. And it's not about music; it has a musical aspect to it. But the book's not about music. The book could best be described as, uh, this is an overused term, but a moral fable. Um, Ian McEwen is a, as a, ver- a world, world-renowned renowned novelist n- now, and he was very critically acclaimed before Amsterdam came out. But Amsterdam came out in the late 90s, 1998, and it won the British Booker Prize. And it really kind of put him on the map and he went on to sort of greater literary stardom and acclaim since then with a lot of other famous books. Probably the most famous is called Atonement, which was made to a really well-known and very good film. And uh, other books as well, Saturday and, uh, and, and others. Um, but Ian McEwen is, is, I've read a number of his books, not all of them, but he's kind of famous for I guess I would say like exactitude. His books are very finely calibrated and plotted. And they tend to be to feature characters who do something technical or something that requires a lot of very specific expertise. And Amsterdam is an example of that, as I'll get into in a second. Another book I read by him, the main character was a brain surgeon. And McEwen is famous for doing a lot of research. And there was a huge passage in the book Saturday about this brain surgeon actually performing an operation. And it was very impressive just for how detailed it was. Like the guy obviously really does his research. And that's one of the most impressive things about Ian McEwen's writing, but he's also very British and his tales tend to be really dark and they're very clipped and they sort of almost come out as almost dispassionate because they're so precise and um, sort of, beautifully orchestrated and written, but they tend to be, they're not um, superfluous or there's no purple prose. You know, it's a very kind of clipped and British style of communicating in prose fiction. So the book Amsterdam is a, is a short novel. Um, I read it about 20 years ago, shortly after it came out. 
And that's because I worked in a bookstore and it was kind of all the rage then. And it, it has, it'd be hard to explain the plot, but it, it deals with these, it deals with uh, a woman dies at the beginning of the, um, in, at the beginning of the novel, it's sort of a member of British high society. She's dating somebody or no, she's married to somebody who's, um, you know, a, a member of British high society. And the book opens with her funeral and um, two of her former lovers meet at the funeral and rekindle their relationship with one another because they were they became friends later. One of them is the editor of a huge British newspaper modeled after like The Guardian or The Sun or something like that. And the other one is a world famous composer. And who has just been commissioned to do the British symphony to celebrate the new millennium. So he scored like this big, you know, commission, this big gig, you know, probably the ultimate nod to his uh, fame and renown as a composer. But he's just kind of landed this gig and he's working on his symphony for the new millennium, even though it's a couple years away. Hmm. So these two men meet at the funeral and then they rekindle a friendship. And long story short, they start to get back together again and they share a lot of reminiscences about the woman that they had both been lovers with. And um, in the course of the book, there's a lot of ins and outs, but they they make a pact with each other, which is that if they both were to become too sick or unable to do their jobs, either as the head of this newspaper or as a composer of world famous renown, that they will help the other guy commit suicide. So they make a pact to do that. And that pact uh, becomes a disastrous thing in both of their lives. And it leads to um, all these twists and turns. It's an extremely precisely and carefully plotted novel that has twists and turns. And it involves like a huge with another man who was the, a lover of the same woman who's now in line for the prime ministership of Great Britain. And there's a moral dilemma around whether to expose him in the newspaper. And at the same time, the composer is working on his symphony and it's not coming together kind of the way he wants it to. And then the reason why it's called Amsterdam is because the world premiere of the symphony happens in Amsterdam about a year short of the millennium. And um, the two of them meet there to attend the world premiere. And that's all I'll say there because there's a, a lot of twists at the end and it's a very surprising novel. But the reason why I brought it in here, John, is because I read it 20 years ago and I always remembered it not only for its tight plotting, because it's less than 200 pages, like you fly through it. The other reason why I remembered it is because of the way he wrote The Composer. And I remembered reading about the way Ian McEwen wrote about this composer trying to write a piece of music under pressure and trying to perform his craft in general was so memorable that I remember it 20 years later and it came up when we wanted to prepare this episode and so I got the book out of the library and I blew through it again. And I would just like to share two short passages from the book um, to give an example of the kind of writing that McEwen does about music, which to me not only shows how impressive his writing is, but also his great understanding of the creation of art in general. And the way he wrote about this guy trying to write a piece of classical music, it gets very technical, but it also gets very philosophical. And so I'll read two passages. One is a little longer and the other one's very short to try to give this impression or to you know let listeners know what I mean. 
and then I'll pass it over to you. You can make a comment. So the first passage goes like this. You don't need a whole lot of um, context. The, the composer is working on this piece of music that has to be great and has to be enjoyed by the whole world. So he says, it was time to recapture music from the commissars, and it was time to reassert music's essential communicativeness, for it was forged in Europe in a humanistic tradition that had always acknowledged the enigma of human nature. It was time to accept that a public performance was a secular communion, and it was time to recognize the primacy of rhythm and pitch for the, and the elemental nature of melody. For this to happen without merely repeating the music of the past, we had to evolve a contemporary definition of beauty. And this in turn was not possible without grasping a fundamental truth. At this point, Clive, the composer, boldly borrowed from some unpublished and highly speculative essays by a colleague of Noam Chomsky's, which he had read while on holiday in the man's house on Cape Cod. Our capacity to read rhythms melodies and pleasing harmonies, like our uniquely human ability to learn language was genetically prescribed. These three elements were found by anthropologists to exist in all musical cultures. Our ear for harmony was hardwired. Furthermore, without a surrounding context of harmony, disharmony was meaningless and uninteresting. Understanding a line of melody was a complex mental act but it was one that even an infant could perform. We were born into an inheritance. We were homo musicus. Defining beauty and music must therefore entail a definition of human nature. So that's the first passage. And I, I was just, the, the book is filled with stuff like that as this guy labors on this uh, symphony. And then the second one is much shorter, John. I'll just move to it quickly. But I relate it more to just sort of the creation of art in general. It's a little bit cynical, but it still shows some of the power of McEwen's prose. He had, so in this, in this passage, the Clive, the composer, has gone to the Lake District in England to try to clear his mind and work on the last passage of the symphony. And he's out on a walk. Okay. He'd been walking for an hour and a half and was still eyeing certain boulders ahead for what they might conceive still regarding the somber face of rock and grass at the end of the valley with vague dread and still pestered by fragments of his conversation with Vernon, that's the editor. The open spaces that were meant to belittle his cares were belittling everything. Endeavor seemed pointless. Symphonies especially, feeble blasts, bombast, doomed attempts to build a mountain in sound, passionate striving, and for what? Money respect, immortality, and a way of denying the randomness that spawned us and of holding off the fear of death. So you can see some of the cynicism and, and the, a little bit of the darkness that's in Ian McEwen's work. But in just in conclusion, the whole book was kind of like this, especially I was really riveted by the, the pieces that contain the composer. And while it does lead to a tragic end, and a dark end. Um, I thought it was the way he wrote about music in this book was not only really impactful and powerful for me, but I remembered it for 20 years. So the book is Amsterdam by Ian McEwen. Well, I, I had no idea that that book had anything to do with music at all. So I didn't know anything about that book. As a matter of fact, I've never read Ian McEwen, even though I know you have read a few mm -hmm. of them and 
talked about him to me before, and I know he's pretty well respected. But those are fascinating passages. It's interesting; they kind of they almost like are at odds with each other. The first one seems to be really about how we were hardwired to appreciate, like you almost can't separate, you know, beauty from musicality in some way or melody and rhythm. And the second one was like. <laughs> like uh, about the futility almost of trying to create music, certainly for something as banal as money, you know, or uh, prestige. So that's pretty right, interesting right. right there. But yeah, yeah, that, that was those, uh, I can see why that book lingered with you. It's really, um, and it, and it's, you know, it, it, it makes me wish I mentioned earlier that I wish I had read, you know, the Oliver Sacks book about, you know, how, in a way how like we're hardwired genetically to respond to and, and produce music, you know, and, and the, the impact of music on the brain and how it, you know, I know there's a passage in that book about how they use music to try to help cure Alzheimer's patients or Parkinson's patients, you know? So sounds like it almost, you know, uh, they're sort of writing in the same vein there a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's really interesting pick. I mean, I haven't read it, so I don't have too much specific I could say about it. But those passages are certainly intriguing, and I didn't see I, I didn't see that coming at all. So yeah, and yeah, the the only other thing I was going to say about it, I meant to say this before, is that and people would have to read this to discover it. But the other thing that related to music to me is that I really, having read a few of his other books, I really feel like the novel almost functions itself like a symphony or a really well-written piece of music. And I mean, classical music where like different passages intertwine together and make sense together. And I thought that that was an aspect of this book as well. So the readers would have to decide that for themselves. Right. And I'm sure that's no accident. I'm sure in a way he was sort of exploring that, or it was at least in his mind, you know, the ways way that a composer works to bring all these different elements, some sometimes possibly seem, you know, seemingly dis disparate elements together and kind of, you know, quote unquote, make music with it. Yes. That bond to, you know, um, sort of similar to what a novel does. I mean, I know you've been finishing up a novel yourself, so you can probably relate to that. You're bringing all these, you know, erratic rhythms and strands and melodies together to try to make sense of the whole piece. So yeah. That it's something pleasing to listen to, quote unquote, you know. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's interesting. There's a lot of interesting parallels there. That's a great choice. Um, and, and my next pick, if you're ready to transition. Yeah. You know, my next book, in a way, uh, again, it taps into some of the same ideas, although from a completely different perspective and voice, of course. My next book is also a book that you gave to me. I, I Actually, you're, I'm looking at my list here, and you're responsible for at least a few of them. So kudos <laughs> to you. You gave me this book. It's a big, thick paperback, really interesting, and it's quite simply called How Music Works, and it was written by David Byrne, who many listeners would probably recognize as the lead creative force behind the, you know, very well-known and very respected um, uh, band Talking Heads, and, and so he's had a long career in the music industry, um, both with his band Talking Heads and as a solo artist and many, many collaborations <laughs> with many other artists. He actually talks about that in this book. His collabor He's got a whole chapter called Collaborating 
or collaborations, I think. But mm. uh, David Byrne is a really unique voice, just full stop, you know, not just in music, but in the world, you know. Um, and he, if you know anything about David Byrne, you know that he's got a very quirky sensibility. He's highly intelligent. Uh, he is well known for drawing from music from all around the world. And he's very experimental when it comes to both writing and performing music. Um, so this is a really eclectic book, really interesting book. And just, just by calling it how music works, you know, is really funny. You know, because that's such a grandiose title, you know, it's like, is this a book of theory? Is he literally going to literally going to talk about how music works? Is he going to talk about how the music business works? Is he, is he going to talk about his music works, how his music works? As it turns out, it's kind of all of the above. This is a really interesting and wide ranging book that literally goes back to prehistoric times. <laughs> and also, but then there's a chapter about how to create the, the perfect nightclub that people will enjoy and you'll also make a profit from. <laughs> he, talk, <laughs> he talks in great detail, like very candidly about how much r money he made making one of his famous solo records with Brian Eno. And it's not as much as you think. Um, and he goes very in depth, like the kind of the, the money side of the business and what it's really like. Um but there are also chapters on his coming up in the world as a musician about how he busked on streets as a teenager, about how he tried, you know, he famously, you know, he, his band, the talking heads was, was one of the bands that was breaking through and kind of when there's a famous sort of punk nightclub called CBGB's in New York city. You'll remember it yeah. um, in the seventies. His was one of the bands that was really, you know, kind of playing there a lot. And they were playing alongside, you know, bands like, I don't know, the New York Dolls or the Ramones or you know, a lot of punk bands. But then they were kind of there doing their own kind of weird eclectic thing. And he talks about the early heady days of CBGBs and what that was like. So this is a really wide ranging. So it's like part memoir, part music appreciation, part music theory and part kind of a primer on the uh, for anybody who wants to get into the music business, what it's really like. <laughs> um, and it's very, it's wonderfully kind of eclectic and strange and, and weird in all the best ways, but also just very practical as well. I mean, it's very down to earth, you know, like I'll, I, I wanted to read, I, I'd love to read many passages from this book, but I, you know, of course I don't have time, but um, in the, it, just to give you a sense though, of how kind of straightforward he is, you know, in his writing, he writes a very straightforward way, but also kind of eloquently, too. So he he has a chapter, as I mentioned, called Collaborations. And this is just the opening paragraph. And it's just a little, little aside, but it kind of is a good example of how forthright his writing style is. It says, the online music magazine Pitchfork once wrote that I would collaborate with anyone for a bag of Doritos. <laughs> this was this wasn't intended as a compliment, though, to be honest, it's not that far from the truth. Contrary to their insinuation, I am fairly picky about picky about who I collaborate with, but I'm also willing to work with people you might not expect me to. I'll risk disaster because the creative rewards of a successful collaboration are great. I've been doing it my whole life. And that's just it's just an interesting and I, I wrote in the margin. I had to. I was like, that's nicely put, you know, like yeah. it's just he's got a very kind of warm 
and personal voice that sounds very much like a real person. But then he'll also, there's a passage early on where he's talking about the whole idea of the music of the spheres and what that means and where that idea came from and why it's interesting. You know, it's, I think hopefully you can get from my description. This is just a really wide ranging and original book. Uh, if you have any interest in music at all in any way, but uh, you know, kind of modern music, all this machinery making modern music as has been said, you know, before, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm kind of look, glancing at a at a review of this book that was written in the uh, Guardian, the UK Guardian, and it says this just gives you an idea of what I'm talking about, how wide ranging this book is. Um, how music works is wonderfully wide ranging, covering the prehistoric origins of music, Madonna's contracts, the musicality of animals, pie charts of earnings from his recent collaboration with Brian Eno, Pythagorean acousmatics, the compositional limitations of midi software algerian pop the filipino people power revolution the ethics of philanthropy 16 pages of tips on how to create a happening nightclub and music physiological and neurological effects (laughs) i mean this is really i would call it a compendium but all kind of filtered through what has to be said is one of the most unique and talented and successful voices in music in the last 40 years. And I think most people, you know, Talking Heads is one of these bands that it's kind of like, almost like a stamp of honor to say that, you know, you're into Talking Heads or my favorite Talking Heads album is Blank. You know, whether people who really know them or not, I feel like almost everybody, it's kind of like one of these bands you kind of have to be into. But having said that, Jude, like, and we've had many conversations about music, you know, you you probably can't talk to a single music fan in any genre who can't point to like two or three or four Talking Heads songs that they think are pretty incredible, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even very recently, and I'll wrap it up here, very recently, like in the last year, year and a half, uh, he had this stage show called American Utopia, which actually Spike Lee made into a film version. And this is like, uh, you know, Critically, this was like a huge hit, and it's supposed to be just a fascinating show. And I know it was the show itself was a huge success. So David Byrne, still very much of uh, a relevant voice in music today, but um, it's hard to imagine a more quirky and fun and interesting guy to talk about, you know, modern music than somebody like David Byrne. So I really found a lot. Even though I'm not that familiar with this music, I found so much to enjoy and be interested in this book, and I would highly recommend it. Yeah, <laughs> what a fascinating book! I remember seeing that in a bookstore, and you know, you and I had, you know, in the talking ads, like everybody else, we knew some of their songs. Sometimes we shared them together, but we were never like really big talking ads fans per se. But everybody knew who David Byrne was if you're from our generation you know, burning down the house, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, there's some, I, I remember reading the back of that and I was like, man, this just has John Lovell written all over it because of the, the, I don't know, like the appetite, you know, that you could see coming out of David Byrne or in that book. And see, so you just talked about how many different directions it goes in. And there are just some creative minds in the world. You know, some of the most unique and interesting artistic figures, they almost like are like, I want to think in terms of space or like events happening, but you can't contain them, you know, or like yeah. a, 
super collider or something where they have like particles going in every direction. <laughs> right. I don't even, I don't know what I'm talking about, but there are some people that are creative like that. You can't, you can't contain them in a way, you know, um, John Darnielle a little bit like that, but David Byrne is a perfect example of that. And, you know, just going through what's it, what's covered in that book is just nuts, you know, yeah. but you know, and to be able to combine that, I didn't read the book, so I can't say a lot about it either. But to be able to combine that, I think, with what sounds like a real down-to-earth candor and even warmth, you know, would make – I think that sounds like a really I, – I really admire both the ambition and what he seems to have achieved in the book. You know, I guess you could argue, if you've read the book, whether it pulls everything off or not. I don't know if you could start a nightclub by reading his book. <laughs> but you're going to learn something, aren't you? And that's what it, that's what it sounds like, you know, like a fascinating journey in which you're going to learn a lot, you know, Absolutely. if you're interested in music in any way. Yeah. And he has literally traveled the world and is, you know, is really kind of a pioneer in the American music scene of bringing other, other voices and other types of music to our shores, you know, so, so you're going to get something just from that. I mean, he's, you know, talks at length about Brazilian music or music from Africa. And that's just, it's just really interesting. So there's a travelogue element almost to it too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just what a, what a fascinating, uh, what a fascinating selection, John. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving it to me. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to transition, keep it going. Cause I, you know, I still have one book and a short story I'd like to at least bring up. And I, I know you have more. Yeah. So, and you know, if we go over, we go over, we'll just, you know, this is a big topic, but, um, but John, you and I are twin brothers. And so we've shared space since literally before we were born. Right. So, Indeed. so I'd like to invite you to join with me on this, my last selection, because it's basically a, it could be a joint selection. I know it was on your longer list. So, yep. and what I'm, what I'm going to do, John, is I'm going to mention the book. I'm going to say right away what I like the most about it. And then I'd like to talk about two passages from the book. One I'm not even going to read. I'm just going to describe. And the other one I'm going to read a brief passage of, which I hope will convey what I love so much about this next book, which I have to say for me, John, for my money, this is my favorite book about music in the whole category. Um, and I can say that with honesty. And it's Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. It's an right. autobiography that came out a few years ago. And I have to say, especially relative to my expectations. I won't tell the whole story, but he did. He played at the Super Bowl several years ago. I never forget it because my favorite team, the Steelers, won. <laughs> and Bruce played at halftime, and then he wrote this blog post about it. And that was the beginning of his autobiography, which is called Born Tron, and it's like 500-something pages, um, or almost 500 pages. And... I remember reading the blog post after he played in the Super Bowl and I didn't like it at all. I didn't like the voice. I didn't like the style. I was like, if this, and then it later came out that that was the beginning of Born to Run. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> this isn't going to work. But you and I, John, had talked for years about how we felt that there was at least one book in Bruce Springsteen because of his abilities as a storyteller and a writer and kind of a voice of the people. So, you still there? I am. Yep. Okay. Um, so anyway, long story short, he went home. He worked on this book for a number of years. It came out, I think, in 2016 or 17. I don't remember. 
exactly what year it was a few years ago. And I picked it up and I was like, here's hoping that this is going to be a good book. And I absolutely devoured it. Um, it got great reviews. Everybody fawns over Bruce Springsteen. He's like the, you know, the beloved son of American music, maybe even American letters or culture. But I yeah. wasn't sure. But when I read it, I was completely sure. I thought it was magnificent. And I'll, so I'll cut right to why. Uh, for me, because you and I are both huge fans of Bruce Springsteen, of course. And our older brother, even more so, going all the way back to when we were very young. He was a huge Bruce fan. And, of course, he devoured it. Our younger brother devoured it. You know, um, a lot of our listeners like it. So Bruce is not going to have to be introduced to anybody. But we know from his writing and in interviews and all the decades that he's been so popular around the world and revered that he's a very thoughtful person at heart. And he really takes his job seriously, which is a craft for him. Right. It's a craft. It's an art. Yeah. He's always tried to develop and it's been doing like his entire life. What I love so much about Born to Run, John, and I was so happy that it's a long book, 500 page book, because it gave you so much of this was how far Bruce went into in the book with his thoughtful nature, his contemplative nature and his sort of interior nature, his understanding of what his work is really about and how it relates to the people that enjoy his work. And that the book is absolutely loaded with insights about his understanding of what he's doing when he's on the stage and what it means to him and what he hopes it means to you. Mm -hmm. And that speaks throughout the book. And that's my favorite thing in the book. There's other things I love about the book. I've always said on this podcast, I love hearing about the sausage, how the sausage is made. This tells you how the sausage is made on every single Bruce record. And furthermore, another thing that sticks out that I must mention is how beautifully and profoundly and respectfully he writes about his own family, even the family members that he didn't get on with, like his father. Um, it's just yeah. an unbelievably loving portrait and a deeply considered portrait of the people that he comes from. So I, I want to invite you into the discussion. I'll mention two things in the book that are absolutely probably my favorite things I've read in any music book. One comes fairly early in the book. It's about a third of the way in. Bruce is just exploding in popularity, and the, the album Born to Run has just come out in 1975. And he immediately goes on a tour. And they're trying to launch the album and the tour, and they're trying to turn him into a nationwide or worldwide superstar, which they were successful in doing. So he goes immediately over to London to play some shows at the, uh, what's the famous? Uh, Viking Island. I'm sorry. Is it Hammersmith? Yeah, Hammersmith Odeon Theater in London, right in the middle of London. Yeah. And when they get there, he brings the E Street Band over there. And when they get there, he sees all over the theater and all around the streets near the theater, his own face plastered everywhere. And all this hype about the concerts. Root Springsteen has arrived, born to run. You know, it's time for him to take over the world, all this stuff. He gets there and he sees all that and he immediately gets pissed off, like hopping mad. And the book describes this. And he goes to his managers and you, you'd have to read the passage the way Bruce Springsteen writes it. But he basically says, you do not, you guys don't get this. You do not go to some other place and announce the greatness before it's proven on the stage. You don't <laughs> come over here and put it all over the place. You prove it on the stage and then let the adulation follow. And he makes them like rip all the signs down or whatever, or he does what he can. 
you know, to, to adjust that, but he gets profoundly angry. And I absolutely love that. And it says so much about the artist that he was, even as a young man, he was only like 24, 25, you know, yeah. doing this. And then real quick, John, because I want to hear some of your just off the cuff remarks about Born to Run. Um, Cause I just, I just adore this book. I loved every page of it and I definitely will read it again. But my favorite part in the entire book is this, and you can set up fairly easily. So uh, right around the millennium, like late 1999, Bruce had been quiet with the E Street Band for many years since like born in the USA, right? Like he hadn't been writing or touring with the E Street Band. And he decided that he wanted to play with these members of the E Street Band again. So if you remember, and you do, because we went to this tour, <laughs> yeah. we got the band back together and did a, a reunion tour before recording a new album with them, which became The Rising that came out in 2002. And 9-11 was woven in with all that and everything. But in 99, obviously 90, the 9-11 hadn't happened. So Bruce is getting the band back together and they've released a big set of B-sides called Tracks. You remember that really well. Yeah. And they go into rehearsal and the rehearsals are in New Jersey. And it's like abandoned little theater down at the shore, of course, because it's Bruce. And they're rehearsing and it's not going real well and bruce is describing it late in the book and then there's these two paragraphs this is just astonishing to me and it says one evening i sat with john john landau is his manager and they're doing these rehearsals that aren't going real well sat with john in the film center cafe on ninth avenue in hell's kitchen in new york i wrote out my proposed set list he looked it over and said we're a little short on the songs that after 10 years people might want to hear really I made my protestations. I can't, I won't, blah, blah, blah. Then I confided in him that I was unsure if the whole thing was going to, if I could make it real. John calmly responded, if you come out with your band and play with your best music, people are going to like it. Oh, so that's Bruce kind of sounding unconvinced. And then we have this paragraph. The next afternoon at Convention Hall, that's in New Jersey, I went through a stressful rehearsal, running through music we'd known long I was feeling somehow leaden and lifeless to me. I was quietly seething with anxiety, but I didn't want to disturb or draw the confidence out of the band. There have been about 50 or so fans milling around outside the hall for the past few weeks. And around mid-afternoon with a few songs left to rehearse, I told one of the crew just to let them in. A rush of shining, exciting faces rushed the stage front as I counted into promised land and suddenly there it was, liftoff. The band felt light as a feather and the deep as the sea. I looked into those faces and I found what I was missing. It was all there inside of me. A great relief washed over me and it all made sense as we'd slogged away for weeks in the convention hall stage in isolation, trying to pump life into our much vaunted songbook. There had only been one thing missing, you. I love that passage so much, you know, like it just turns, turns to the camera and says, the only thing missing from it was you. We needed you to make this work. And if that doesn't sell the book, I don't know what will. So I open it to you. <laughs> <laughs> good. Good. Uh, how can I, how am I supposed to follow that? You know, uh, <laughs> well, it's funny because I don't remember nearly as much of the book as you obviously do. Uh, and I haven't, you know, it's been a while since I read it, but not that long. But 
Um, you're just making me remember these passages that I, I frankly didn't remember, you know, so it's kind of interesting to hear them again. Um, yeah, I, I think my take on the book is a little bit different. Um, I really like, I really liked it. Um, and I, but what I remember from it mostly is a little bit different, not as much about his creative process as it is about how, um, kind of vulnerable he was about who he is as a real person and like you mentioned his family relationships i, I remember my take my takeaway from the book is it's kind of feeling like man he really he really it's like therapy or something like he yeah. really digs into his own issues his own fears he's very uh up all the way through you know he's very candid about for example, his first marriage that he kind of rushed into at the height of his fame mm -hmm. and how that really didn't work and how devastating that was for him. I remember that part of it really well, because just because he really got one thing that comes through is very much his own voice. I've said this. I've said this many times, but, you know, most rock star memoirs are written in collaboration with somebody. Well, there's no question at all that this book is written by him. You know, it's definitely his voice that. And not that we know him intimately and personally, but if you recognize his voice from, you know, his interviews where he ten tends to be pretty candid and his lyrics, uh, it, it's him. It's his voice coming through that you recognize from his songs and his songwriting. You know, uh, there's no question at all that he's that he's not working with anybody else, that he's writing his own story. You know, and I thought that was really refreshing. Um, but can you still hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah. But what I remember most of all about that book is just how is just how vulnerable he is in it and how candid he is about his own shortcomings, his own anxieties. Like I said, he's you know, he talks at length about how uh, devastating it was when his first marriage broke up. He got the sense that, you know, no matter how big and famous he was, like he really wanted to make a marriage work. He really wanted marriage and a family to work in his life. And when it didn't work. The first time out, it was really devastating for him, but then yeah. he was enough to have, you know, meet somebody else and have it really work out. And he, he writes very movingly about his own family. And I mean, his family with Patty Scalfa and like his children. I remember there's a really beautiful passage and you, you'll remember it too, where he describes the birth of his first son and how, how much that, you know, meant to him and how much that impacted him. It's really beautifully written. Um, and then, of course, the whole saga of his, of his relationship with his father, you know, is really kind of eloquently expressed. And a lot of this now, you know, he did that whole spring scene on Broadway show, which you and I have talked about that, how it's it almost as big as fans we are, of Bruce, it almost feels like it was unnecessary because it was all in the book, you know, but yeah, I guess yeah. a different way to tell the story to people, you know, it's kind of like a you mentioned him as like the, you know, this popular voice. And, and we've talked about this too, is like, he's almost become like a Charles Dickens character <laughs> or not character, but like Charles Dickens himself, you know, kind of taking his own story on the road and bringing it to the people literally himself and performing, yeah. you know, reading it and performing it. And he's done that. And he's doing it again right now, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, but yeah, my, my impressions of the book were mostly, uh, I was really struck by how, um, uh, personal it was and how much he pulled back the curtain on his own self. You know, he doesn't do it on, the, it's not a tell all about other people. He doesn't 
say too much about his own family members, but for himself, he really digs down into what makes him tick and what, you know, uh, what he struggles with and how he, how he uh, perfects his craft, like you said. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really, and, and it's interesting too, cause we've talked about, you know, he taught, you know, he, he was raised Catholic and his Catholicism comes up in the book several times and he's got sort of a conflicted relationship with Catholicism. He, at one point he says, I'm still on the team, even though I don't go to practice or something like that. Yeah, right. Right. But I remember finding it very, very, very interesting that the entire book ends up with basically a re- recitation of the Lord's Prayer. You know, like yeah. I a very unusual and it's not for Bruce. If you know something about Bruce, it's maybe not unusual, but a, a rock and roll biography that ends with the with the Lord's Prayer that I just didn't see that coming, you know. So yeah. there are lots of elements in that book. But, um, you know, the passages you bring up, I you know, hadn't really thought of in a while. And it's, it's just it's it speaks to how. You know, this is the only thing he's ever done, as he says repeatedly, you know, and he says, I don't know how to do anything else. And this was my whole life. But he's certainly given it everything that he has, heart and soul. And he's still doing it, you know, so that so that's impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I just, you know, all those things you said are true. And you brought up some other elements of the book that are there. But it's really just, you know, if you have any interest in in his music or in just, uh, you know, American culture in general or creating art or what it's like to be extremely famous and revered, you know, this, this book is worth reading. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to keep it going. This is a totally different selection. Now we're going to go back to the fiction world. Um, a book that I read fairly recently for the first time, but it's from a writer that, we both admire quite a bit. You brought him up actually in the last episode. His name is Roddy Doyle. Oh yeah. From, from Ireland. And Roddy Doyle's debut novel uh, is, was a novel called the commitments. Now, most people, a lot of people might recognize that title, the commitments from a very popular movie that was made in the 19, I think it was the late 1980s. Um, based on this novel by Roddy Doyle. It was made by Alan Parker, the filmmaker Alan Parker. It was a big hit. Dude, of course, you remember the movie The Commitments, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. And the soundtrack was a really big hit as well. And uh, But not a lot of people... I, I think... I feel like the novel is relatively underappreciated. Even though Roddy Doyle is well-known, he's gone on to create put a, quite a career for himself. And if you're a fan of Roddy Doyle, you know that his early work is composed of a trilogy called, you mentioned it, I think you mentioned it last week, last episode briefly, called the Barrytown Trilogy, which is basically about this one kind of working class area of Dublin where I believe he's from. He has a trilogy of sort of comic novels uh, that, that kind of come from that area, and that, that community in this working class neighborhood around Dublin. And they're all known for, you know, great, you know, cracking dialogue, hilarious you know, banter, a lot of wit, a lot of humor, but also kind of butting up against some, you know, really more difficult realities of living in this, in this kind of, um, you know, very much working class area of Dublin. Um, And The Commitments was the first book in this trilogy. And it's The Commitments is a novel about basically some, some young Irish guys who really have nothing better to do with their, but they're, uh, 
the fans of music and they basically uh, form a band. But this one guy has this vision to kind of form this band of amongst his own friends. And uh, he has an interest in getting into the music business. But what he wants to do is perform like soul music, American soul music. And that's kind of something that's not really wasn't really well known in Dublin at that time. Um, but that was his vision to kind of create this like soul band. And, you know, it's kind of, it's sort of like a, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, you know, an unexpected triumph kind of story where, you know, like you wouldn't expect like a, 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 a band to come together that plays American soul music to kind of catch on in a place in, like working class Dublin. Uh, but this, but the novel kind of chronicles how they uh, actually, you know, kind of build up a following, and it sort of flames out after a while. But um, it's really kind of a this this novel is really you know a rollicking, funny, uh, witty book, and it's mainly about like kind of the joy of getting together and discovering that you can make music if you really work at it. And it's kind of this ragtag band of young people who are kind of like. You know, they work in factories or fisheries or, you know, but they some of them don't, you know, they have to like sell like their family vacuum cleaner in order to buy a secondhand bass guitar. Or they kind of just scrape together a band out of odds and ends, essentially. But somehow this guy who's their manager, you know, somehow his vision kind of pulls it together and they start to make music. And as they make music, they start to realize, you know, just the joy and the exuberance of making music together and it really, you know, starts to catch fire and people start hearing it. And um, there's a hilarious passage that describes their first gig, which is at like a community center or something. And it's kind of a disaster, you know, <laughs> like there's about <laughs> 20 people there and the, the teenagers sneak in and they're kind of making fun of them because they're playing older music. But even in this gig, they kind of, they sort of win the crowd over a little bit just with some of this, because the music they're playing is like James, James Brown or, you know, um, different songs like that. And they really kind of win the crowd over. And that's kind of the story of the whole book. It's just how this ragtag band sort of forms together and um, somehow makes it work, you know. But it's it's a short read. It's very funny. Uh, it's a lot of hilarious, you know, Irish banter back and forth. But I think what really comes through is kind of like uh, the love of music and how music can really um, bring people together and, you know, uh, speak to people, you know, who are hardworking people who might be down on their luck or whatever. And um, it's just that kind of a story. It's kind of it's a little bit of a feel good story, I guess. But, you know, they don't in the end, they don't become this hugely popular band or anything like that. But what really comes through is how much fun they have making the music and how they it, it somehow enables this sort of ragtag band of misfits to connect with people. And it's it's I really enjoyed it. It's a fast moving novel. It's about, you know, 170 pages full of humor. You would love it. And anybody who loves Irish literature would love it, too. So that's the commitments by Roddy Doyle. Yeah, another really good choice, John. Um, I'm a big fan of Roddy Doyle. I've actually never read the Barrytown trilogy, um, although I have it. Um, my wife actually had a copy. I have a copy at home and I, I'm definitely going to read that whole. It's an omnibus. It's three books in one definitely going to read that someday you got to uh, get it yeah with the other novels that are called the van and the snapper the snapper being a slangish term for a baby <laughs> and that was actually a film too i saw the film version of the snapper 
but um it was the van yeah never i've never seen the van either but yeah um I've read a lot of Roddy Doyle's later books, though. Um, probably the most, the best one I've read, and I know you've read this book. It's called, and this is one of my favorite titles of all novels I've ever read. It's called Patty Clark, Ha Ha Ha. Yeah. And it's about a boy growing up in kind of an impoverished part of Dublin. Um, great book, won the Booker Prize again in England. And um, he's written other novels that I really liked. Uh, a Star Called Henry is another one. And I actually just read one uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, cause he's still writing, he's still writing great books. It was, it was a good, it was a very good novel, had all of his hallmarks, had the humor. It was short It had snappy dialogue, but it, it kind of had, it had dark qualities as well. Um, and I won't explain it, but the book was called smile. And then, uh, I think that his most recent novel is called love. And I want to say that it's a sequel to smile that like it continues the story, of the character introduced in smile, but I don't okay. know that for sure. But, um, yeah, Roddy Doyle's a great writer, a kind of an over an, an overlooked writer, at least in America. Um, but if you have any interest in Irish literature or Irish culture, I mean, he's like uh, one of the best practitioners the last, you know, several decades. You know, the humor yeah. is there. The pathos is there. The the uh, the compassion is there. And um, the commitments is kind of, it's a little bit like Rocky. You know, it's like Irish Rocky in a way. Like it's like it's an underdog yeah. story. You know, that's, and, the, and they, that's that's the word I was trying. I couldn't think of the word underdog, but that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they don't quite win the title, but they get close enough to you to, to earn your respect at the end. You know, you know, yeah, and, exactly. Uh, so that's a that's a great choice. And um, and Roddy Doyle is a great name for listeners to file away, especially if they have any interest in Irish literature or Irish culture. So, um, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so I'm going to bring up one more thing, John, and then I don't know what else you have, um, but you can let me know. Um, and I'll, okay. I'll try to do it quickly. So I really wanted to bring this up because, again, this is another thing that has stuck in my head for at least 20 years. Um, and But it's a short story. One of the most profound things I've ever read about music, for sure, in my whole life. And it stuck with me. And as soon as we decided we were going to do this, I knew I wanted to bring this into it. And I just happened to have this ratty old photocopied copy of this story that I was assigned in graduate school back in 1998 or 99. Um, and so I have that with me, this with me, and I just want to recommend it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to read like maybe a paragraph from this book, but I'll say it again. One of the most profound things I've ever read about music in any form, this happens to be short fiction is a story called Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin, who we haven't talked about a lot in this uh, in this podcast, but one of the great writers from the African-American tradition, um, one of the most profound nonfiction books about the black community anyone will ever read is his short essay book called The Fire Next Time. So if you haven't read The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, you should, but he's also well well known and well respected as a as a novelist and a short fiction writer so i'm not even sure what the name of the collection this story comes from uh there's a novelist named francine prose who was teaching a literature course that i took in 98 99 in new york city and she assigned this story to us um and it's called sunny's blues and it's it's worth a read anybody who's interested in short fiction and music should go check this out um it's about a 20 page 
read. It's not easy to read. It's a thick story and fairly intense. It's about these two grown brothers in Harlem in the like the 50s, I believe. One, and they're both adults. And one of them has had the younger brother has had a very troubled life and has struggled a lot with drug addiction and alcohol. The older brother had his own troubles. He's a little bit more responsible, but he lost a, a daughter, his daughter at a young age to an illness. And he's really struggled with trying to recover from that tremendous loss. And he's mm -hmm. also feels responsible for his younger brother who has had a great struggle with addiction and he doesn't really understand him. And a lot of the book is their family history and their, and their clash. I mean, sorry, a lot of the stories are family history and they're clashing with one another. But the, the heart of the story is when he, but his younger brother, who's Sonny, happens to be a musician, or at least he was when he was younger, and then he fell off the train when he got caught up in drugs and alcohol. And he's trying to get, in this story, he's trying to get back on the train. So where this story gets really profound is in, at the end, there's a lot of stuff that happens and there's a lot of tension and drama within the family and especially between these two brothers in this part of New York back in the fifties. And there's, of course, there's racism and persecution at the hands of the white people, et cetera, that factor into the story, but where it really begins to happen or the profundity really begins to happen is at the end of the story, the younger brother, Sonny receives an invitation to play at a jazz club and he's trying to get his chops back. And so he, drags his older brother to the club to watch him play. And the older brother kind of wants to, but is kind of reluctant and he doesn't really get it. And the last three or four pages of the story is this unbelievable description of Sonny taking the stage with this small jazz unit. Um, a guy playing, I want to say, uh, I'm sorry that I can't remember this. I want to say like a, a horn or a saxophone, but I, Honestly, I can't remember. Just it's sort of described as a horn. It might say it elsewhere, but it's not important. And then the leader of the band is this huge black, old black man named Creole. And the paragraph that I'm going to read is they've just taken the stage and they've started to play. And Sonny is not really getting his chops back yet. He's still trying to find his groove on the stage. And then this paragraph comes about maybe two pages from the end of the story and and it, and it goes like this so they're they're now playing on the stage sunny creole and this other guy with a horn all i know about music is that not many people ever really hear it and even then on the rare occasions when something opens within and the music enters what we mainly hear or hear corroborated are personal, private, vanishing evocations. But the man who creates the music is hearing something else, is dealing with the roar rising from the void and imposing order on it as it hits the air. What is evoked in him then is of another order, more terrible because it has no words and triumphant too for that same reason. And his triumph, when he triumphs, is our triumph. I just watched Sonny's face. His face was troubled. He was working hard, but he wasn't with it. And I had the feeling that in a way, everyone on the bandstand was waiting for him, both waiting for him and pushing him along. But as I began to watch Creole, 
I realized that it was Creole who held them all back. He had them on a short rein, up there, keeping the beat with his whole body, waiting on the fiddle, his eyes half closed. He was listening to everything, but he was listening to Sonny. He was having a dialogue with Sonny. He wanted Sonny to leave the shoreline and strike out for the deep water. He was Sonny's witness that deep water and drowning were not the same thing. He had been there and he knew, and he wanted Sonny to know. He was waiting for Sonny to do the things on the keys, which would let Creole know that Sonny was in the water. And then if that isn't enough, it just continues for another page and a half. And then you get the very last line of the story, which I want to read. The song is over and they're preparing to go on to the next song. And the brother, the older brother has realized that he's missed what really makes Sonny tick. And so he goes to the bar and he gets a, I don't know what this drink is, but he gets a, a glass of milk with scotch in it and he brings it over and he sets it on top of the piano for Sonny to sip from as kind of a gesture to him. And then they, the band continues playing and then it comes up to this final line of the story. Um, and it's the older brother talking for me. Then as they began to play again, the glass glowed and shook above my, above my brother's head, like the very cup of trembling. And that's what I wanted to share because it's just, you know, the, the writing in that story about this blues band, a totally different form of music, but it's super powerful. It's an unbelievable story. It's one of the most gripping things I've ever read about music. <laughs> wow. That's awesome, man. Um, I'm glad that you brought James Baldwin into the discussion to kind of like uh, class up the joint a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> After talking about Black Sabbath and Springsteen and all that, no, that, uh, I've never I've read James Baldwin a few times. Go tell it on the mountain, uh, the fire next time. That might be it. I've definitely never read that story, but I'm, that's a new one for me. But I'm really glad you brought it up because that makes me want to read it. That's for sure. Yeah, um, sounds like a really powerful story, and I'm glad you worked it in there. Um, he's, you know, I haven't I haven't read him in quite a while, but he's definitely one of the, one of the great American voices for sure of the last hundred years. Oh yeah. Agreed. So, great pick. Well, I have, um, I, I bet you can find that story online or something too. Maybe uh, Sonny's blues, I think it's called, but uh, yeah. yeah, I'd be curious to read that one. I have a couple books left, but I'm just, I'll kind of like go through them quickly. Um, so, and, and, you know, we'll just kind of wrap it up after that, because I think that was your last contribution, right? Right. Right. Okay. So I had to bring this next one up. I read this fairly recently, and I read it kind of because uh, I thought it would be amusing. But actually, as I was reading it, I realized, man, does this book need to be a part of this discussion? But it's more because it connects to you and I so, so personally, you know? Um, like, and you know, this won't apply to everybody, but you and I having this conversation, like just the time that we grew up and when we were teenagers going to high school, you know, middle school into high school, um, it has to be said, you know, whether it's cool now or not, it has to be said that we were coming up right when like basically hair metal, hair, heavy metal, you know, kind of, you know, exploded onto the popular music scene and was really for like, a large part of the eighties, you know, one of the most popular forms of music that there was, you know, and that was, right. 
That was right when we were transitioning from middle school and pretty much all the way through high school. And this was like kind of the, whether you want to call it gold, golden or maybe bronze or whatever, but or leaden. But this is the, the golden age of like, you know, just ridiculous 80s heavy metal. It was right <laughs> when I, and I realized, like, we cannot, somebody has to represent that music in this conversation. So there's, <laughs> so there's a book called Fargo Rock City, which of course is a, a, a riff on the, the Kiss, the famous Kiss epic Detroit Rock City, you know. It's by Chuck Klosterman, who is from North Dakota. <laughs> and it's, it's essentially just like his, the subtitle is a heavy metal odyssey in rural, rural North Dakota. But like, you know, I thought, you know, the, the cover's funny. It's got a cow that looks like it's wearing Gene Simmons, you know, famous demonic makeup. I thought this is going to be funny. You know, on the back, it has it's got a blurb from your, your man, Stephen King. You know, <laughs> pretty like, you know. He, he tends to be effusive in his praise, let's say. But, you know, writing about American pop culture doesn't get any better than this or any funnier or any more readable. If you love rock and roll, you will love Fargo Rock City, Stevie King. <laughs> but <laughs> somebody on the back of the book called it The Great Gatsby of Heavy Metal Literature, which I like, come on. Really? You know? <laughs> but, dude. The only reason I brought, I mean, I read it just, I thought it'd be fun to read it. It's like a book about 80s metal, which, but man, this is like, <laughs> this is where it get a little person. It won't be as funny. Other, This is literally our high school years in paperback form. This book from, <laughs> from Tata. And what I'm going to do, I can't really, it just, I mean, it's a book, like, it's a pretty long book too. And it literally just goes into like every nook and cranny of 80s metal that there could possibly be. And I'm talking like, <laughs> bands that unbelievably obscure bands that like, I don't even remember. I sort of remember when he brought them up, he'll spend like two, three, four pages on like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, like, um, like Helix or Tracy guns of LA gun, <laughs> <laughs> like second and third tier bands that were emulating rat, you know, like, Oh my God. <laughs> It goes so in depth into the '80s metal scene, and I have to say, from beginning to end, I was absolutely howling at this book. You know, it's just <laughs> and what it was like to be a metal fan. Now he also combines it with like living in North Dakota, and it's a very you know incredibly rural area and lots of snow and stuff. But I, I just had what I'm going to do is, and this will mean mean more to you than anyone else listening to this but i'm gonna just read you the chapter titles because it's like literally a chronicle of our high school years okay i mean just i mean you're gonna hear this and it's just gonna bring back all kinds of ridiculous memory so like the first chapter is called october 26 1983 the worldwide release of motley Crue's shout the devil <laughs> that's, that's the first chapter you know so i mean and he talks about how his older brother brings home Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil, which if you recall, we didn't, our older brother certainly didn't bring home Shout at the Devil. Let's make that clear. But we did. And was, <laughs> we did. That was yeah. like a seismic event for us. And it, it clearly was for Chuck Klosterman too. And he talks a lot about Motley Crue and it's just ridiculous. But I mean, this is like a timeline of our high school music years, Jude. It's like March 24th, 1984, Van Halen's jump holds off Karma Chameleon and 99 Luff Balloons for a fifth consecutive week to remain America's number one single. 
December 31st, 1984, Def Leppard drummer Rick Allen loses his left arm in a car accident. I mean, every single one of these, you're going to rem- you're going to be nodding your head. <laughs> June 6, 1985, Axl Rose fa- fires guitarist Tracy Guns and George joins forces with Slash, finalizing the Guns and Roses lineup that would record Appetite for Destruction. I mean, these are major events in world culture that are yeah. being in this book. December 12, 1985, while listening to Judas Priest's Staying Class LP, 18-year-old, oh, this is a, not a very nice one, Raymond Belknap blows his head off with a shotgun. His 21-year-old friend, James Vance, tries to do the same and somehow manages to fail. Um, next one is summer 1986. Poison. <laughs> September 13th, 1986, Bon Jovi's keyboard-saturated, slippery when wet, quietly enters the Billboard chart at number 45 and goes on to sell 12 million copies. <laughs> the Jeez. following summer... Bon Jovi headlines the Donington Rock Festival over, quote, serious metal acts like Wasp, Metallica, and Anthrax. <laughs> I mean, uh, April 18th, 1987, MTV premieres Headbangers Ball at 11 p.m. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I remember us going over to people's houses just so we could watch Headbangers Ball. It's just it's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> October 10th, 1987, White Snake's Here I Go Again is America's number one single, ousting Whitney Houston's Didn't We Almost Have It All. <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm just laughing. So I, I won't, you know, I'll stop it there. But this is literally, it's just, it's just a, it's just a kind of a history of like the most ridiculous 80s metal, but it's it's hilarious what a deep dive this is. I mean, he goes on and on and on about how Appetite Destruct for Destruction is one of the greatest rock albums ever made. You know, uh, it's just it's very funny to read. It's mostly just kind of for us, you know. Like a re- it just reminded me so much of uh, of uh, you know growing up in high school, like and what you know seeing some of these bands and the kind of how they rise. And, you know, people forget, I, I was making this point to you sort of off camera, but it's from this book, so I'll just share it with you. You know, heavy metal, hair band heavy metal has not aged well. You know, nowadays it's like, you know, you, you almost have to, you know, and that's part of the point of this book. Like, why should I be embarrassed that I was a heavy metal fan? But you kind of have to be. It hasn't aged very well. Yeah. But at the time when we were in high school, this was a immensely popular music. It wasn't just like on the fringe. And he says, like, look, let's say you walked into the average American record store on a typical summer day in 1987. What was selling? Well, U2's The Joshua Tree was number one on the charts. You'll remember that, of course, very well. But White Snake was number two. White Snake, okay, first of all. And he spends a <laughs> lot of time in this book just ripping David Coverdale, which is hilarious. <laughs> Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls was number three. Bon Jovi's Commercial Monster Slippery When Wet was, was number four. Poison was number five. Oi, Ozzy Osbourne's Live Tribute to Randy Rhodes was number six. Cinderella's Night Songs was a year old, but was hanging on at number 27. Ace Frehley was showing his windshield-scarred face at number 43. <laughs> Tesla's Mechanical Resonance was outperforming REM's Dead Letter Office by 11 spots. 
<laughs> Christ even, even Stripers to Hell with the Devil was at number 74. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, like all that's, I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous thinking about it now, but it was actually really popular for like about five, six, seven years. And then as soon as, you know, kind of the Seattle music scene exploded, and he kind of goes into this at length too, you know, and bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, you know, some of those bands that came out of that area and it ended up, you know, whatever grunge means, you know, that kind of signaled the death knell of heavy metal, you know, but it's, and of course it's still sort of hanging around, but this is right. just, a, I had to mention, this is just a hilarious book. You know, anybody who grew up in that time period, whether you were kind of a quote unquote metal fan or not, you'll remember that how ridiculous that music was, how, you know, it was pervasive on MTV uh, and this just kind of really, you know, bring up, brought all that back to me in a very, very entertaining and funny way. Although it's sort of ridiculous to think that anyone would take this deep a dive, you know, into <laughs> into that period of music, which doesn't seem to be really worth it. But still, you know, it's just really funny. I mean, anyway, so that's that's what Fargo Rock City is. I know you'd appreciate it if you read it. Uh, it's just, yeah. Again, it's again, it's like our high school career in, in paperback form, for better or for worse. Yeah, you kind of had to be there, but if you were, it's funny as hell. Oh, it's funny as hell. And um, the last book I'm just going to mention really quickly, um, one, because our time is kind of, you know, getting short. The other is that, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but uh, it should be noted that my co-host here has written a book about music and about a particular band, um, a specific band that we both love. We, we feature them at the very top of this episode. I'm talking about Rush. And Jude, you have a book about the music of Rush. It's called Random Samples, Demystifying the Magic Music of Rush. And um, I wanted to bring it up and kind of recommend it to people. Now, you know, whether you're a fan of Rush or not, this book, uh, I've read a few books about Rush, but uh, this book is kind of one of the more interesting ones. I think what you do in this book, which is really interesting, is you kind of focus on a few of their albums that are, aren't as po popular as some of their more well-known ones like Mo Moving Pictures or um, Permanent Wave. And right. you kind of just kind of, it's sort of like a kind of a personal take on, on what Rush does and why their music is important to you. And it ends with a really uh, kind of a, I remember the ending has sort of an epilogue, which describes, uh, you know, when you and I and a couple of my sons and a couple of friends went to see Rush on their final tour, was called the r40 tour and it was a really kind of a nice has this nice epilogue where you know it describes how rush kind of really sort of like went out at the top of their game which is unusual for aging you know rock artists number one mm -hmm. and of course you know ever since that happened you know that rush's drummer neil peart has succumbed to cancer and so now you can, there is no rush anymore and there never will be so it's kind of if you're a fan of rush at all sort of poignant from that point of view but um, you really kind of, uh, you know, kind of brought it into kind of a personal kind of ending there where you, you know, was a little bit, we just had a nice kind of sort of family experience going to see Rush on that last tour. But, you know, I just thought you could, I'd pass the ball over to you and, and um, not put you on the spot, but, um, you know, just what, why write a book about Rush and um, what was it like for you, someone who tries to write novels and, you know, a couple of nonfiction books, but just to write write a book about music and what made you want to do that? Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for bringing up the book. Yeah. 
I appreciate that a lot, John. I do whenever you bring up anything, but I've written, <clears throat> although I guess this is the episode for it. If we're, if we were going to talk about it, but yeah, it was interesting. Like I, I, I just kind of realized, you know, <clears throat> well, I felt like I always had writing about rush in me because rush is the only band that has been with me consistently through all these different seasons of our lives. Right. Like it was there sort of on the parallel track the whole time that period you were just talking about. I was a huge Rush fan, even though they weren't considered like a hair metal band. But I really started getting into them in the very early 80s, you know. And yep. if you were alive when Permanent or in uh, Moving Pictures came out in 1981, I mean, I mean, Tom Sawyer, Red Barchetta and stuff, Limelight was all over the radio. I mean, Rush was a huge band at that time. But then they went out to be like, really um one of the bands i listened to the most and thought about the most for kind of the rest of my life up till now and it still kind of continues so i always felt like i had writing about rush in me somewhere like like i wanted to pay some tribute to them and their incredible career over four decades but aside from a short story i once wrote that had some rush themes in it yep in, in a way um I hadn't really done so. And then fast forward to 2015, we saw them on the final tour and I had been just, you know, you and I, we've been discussing and listening intensely to their music, not only you and I, but our friends and, you know, our brothers even, and, and uh, people that we knew and they were just a constant companion for our life, you know? And yep. I really profoundly respected them for many reasons for their long career and their longevity and their brilliance as musicians. So when we went to the R40 tour, that really kindled the fire. I said, I got to write something about this. You know, we went, as you mentioned, my son was too young and my kids don't care much about Rush as most of the kids of the <laughs> generations coming up behind us with, you know, your son's accepted, you know, are, you know, they haven't really translated to the younger generations in the same way maybe other bands do. Um, but anyway, um, we, we were able to bring some members of, the next generation, you know, uh, your sons, you know, were, you know, huge for me, you know, big parts of my life. And also one of our good friends brought his sons as well. So we went to a concert and we had this whole, and, a, and a, that experience resulted in my epilogue. It was sort of ready made for my epilogue. And I knew I could do something with that, but I started to write what I thought was going to be an essay just about their great career. I remember I called it exit the warriors from Tom Sawyer, but I thought, no, nah, I can't call it. Everybody's going to call their, their, yeah. their rush themed essay that, you know, when their, their career was over. So, and then, but what happened was, and I won't go on too much longer. What happened was I started writing in it. And as often happens with fiction and it just kind of blew open the doors within me. And I realized I had a lot of things to say about my life with rush. And I noticed early on that my, most of my thoughts were around, three albums that weren't particularly canonical rush albums, you know, Grace mm -hmm. Under Pressure was one that I discovered in the early eighties. And then in the nineties, you talked about all the Seattle and the grunge stuff, their kind of product in that era was this album called counterparts. And then their last studio album in 2012 called clockwork angels. And I just thought I had a lot to say about those three records. And then eventually it led to this concept I have of, do I had of doing kind of a, memoirish rock and roll story about my life interwoven with three more obscure rush albums. And that's when I seized upon the term random samples 
which is one of their songs, but it also seemed like I had chosen three albums at random. So when I came up with that, I thought, well, this isn't an essay, it's a book, and I'm going to call it Random Samples, and I just went from there. So, and it, and I'll, I'll just say, to conclude, that's one of my favorite books I've ever written. It was so fun to write. It was so nostalgic. It really got this thing out of me that I wanted to say about this great band that I admired so much, and it ended up kind of on a profound note about sons and family and sharing music together. And I, I it's kind of one of my favorites, so. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, it's kind of one of my favorites, too, of, of what you've written. And I've read everything that you've written. But um, you're right. I mean, like, it, it's really, it just kind of, it's just one of these projects that it's interesting to hear you describe it because it kind of, like, started from a kernel idea uh, of an idea and it just kind of, you know, evolved into something more. And and um, you titling it Random Samples, which is a line from their song Vital Signs. But then, you know, the epilogue that where you kind of tie it to experiencing their music with family and kind of how that was sort of a bonding experience that's called hold the one you need which is right. also for vital signs so it's like i don't you know it's just interesting the way that what you know some people have that ability to tie threads together and that, that that maybe is one definition of a writer you know because i'm sure when you came up with the title random samples you didn't know that the epilogue was going to be called hold the one you need but it just kind of worked um, and it's, it's really, uh, I, I, you know, you kind of have to know something about Rush to probably really enjoy this book. But if you do, you know, if you remember their music in any way, uh, this is, this is a really sort of a unique take on Rush. And, uh, it's a very fun book to read. And, um, yeah, it just kind of, it ties to our own personal experience. So I kind of had to throw that in at the end. <laughs> so a little bit of a, a last two is a little bit of, you know, heavy metal slash prog rock <laughs> ridiculousness, but. That was so much of our personal, you know, growing up with music that it, it had to be in there, you know. Well, it, well, it's yeah, not James Baldwin, but you know. <laughs> no, no. Thanks for bringing it up. I, I just one last thing about it's interesting you bring up "Hold the One You Need," you know, as the prologue because I forgot this about it. But um, so epilogue. I don't want to spoil what epilogue. Yeah, yeah, the epilogue. Um, I don't want to spoil too much about it for the hundreds of readers that are going to go check it out, but. But that time, that time, it was interesting. So, so sometimes when you're writing a book, and this happens in fiction or nonfiction, you you know, I've learned this over the years. You have to, you have to. I said I was expanding it from an essay, and I didn't know where it was going. But you have to allow space for sort of, for lack of a better term, a miracle or something to happen while you're working. So that's what happened with that epilogue. So what happened was. I had written the book, and I wanted a, and I knew what my epilogue was going to be about, and I was looking at Rush lyrics that I thought would work to title the epilogue. And then I found the song um, Vital Signs. And I was looking at the lyrics, which gave me the title for the book, Random Samples. But it also has a famous line with the word, well, the line with the word random sample says, random samples hold the one you need. Well, at the same time, I was looking through, I was uh, thinking about um, a photo that um, somebody had, I guess you had taken when we were leaving the Rush concert and you took this photo of your son, Sam, you know, who yeah. has red hair. And I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but he was riding with you on the train to go back to the car. On the way home from this Rush concert, he had a Rush t-shirt on. And he was only, John, forgive me, he was 10 years old? He was 10, yeah. Yeah. And he's a teenager now. He's older, but he was 10 years old. And you took a photo. He slumped over. It was so late at night, he slumped over on your leg. And he was holding on to your leg and he fell asleep. 
right. And and you took a photo of him asleep holding your leg with the rush shirt on. And I I, th- I saw that and I was like, and then and I just happened to be looking at the lyric, hold the one you need. And I thought that's it. You know, like it was just a gift. And then I put the photo in the back of the book with your permission, you know, Sam. But that was my ending. Just the 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 younger boy riding home with his dad and holding his leg, you know, and I, and I thought this is it. This is what rush has been to me. Like it's, it's more than just, it's more than just, you know, music, you know, when a band stays with you that long, it becomes a part of your life. That's sort of a, one of the themes of the book, you know, so hold the one you need. And that's what Sam was doing, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. That's perfect. That's well said. I'm not going to add anything to that. I was just looking at that photo. Cause I have the book in front of me and, you know, obviously that was touching for me to have that, be part of the end of the book but it, it really did work for the end of the book so so there you go yeah 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 so okay well th- a good we went long with a great discussion and it's a topic that's worthy of it john so i'm i'm glad we talked about everything we talked about so let's yep. take a quick break and i think we can do this fast because um we've already mentioned a little bit about the next episode we'll take a break let's talk about what we're reading next if you can talk about it and then we'll we'll close it up all right sounds good So we're back. And uh, real quick. Um, so, John, uh, do you do you want to mention what you're reading next? No, I actually don't, because this is like we've described before. This is um, every once in a while we read a book uh, or we we're going to read a book in this case that might be something that I might want to share with you later. So I'm not going to bring it up now. I'm going to read it and uh, you may find out later what it was. So I'll kick the ball back over. Um, what are you after we're both reading Owen Meany, as we mentioned before, currently, but after reading Owen Meany, I'm going to try this other book, which I may or may not bring up to you at some future time. So what are you going to read after reading Owen Meany? All right. I'll mention that now, and then I'll just do a quick tease and we'll close it out. Um, so this is a great one. I haven't shared that. I'm wondering if you've heard of this book, John, uh, I made a discovery and I've never read it. Um, it's a new book. And I can't wait to take it out. I'm going to take it on next because I, the library has really been coming through for me. I found many books recently in the library that I, I wanted to read. And this one I happened to find. I'd read something about it. And I found it in my library just sitting there. And I, I grabbed it. That's coming up next. So I want to know if you've ever heard of this. The book, it's, kind of, it's, it's an awkward title. But I don't think it's, I think it's going to be a really fascinating book. It's, the book is called The Reason for the Darkness of the Light. No, the, sorry. The reason for the darkness of the night. Have you ever heard of that book, John? Well, whether it's night or light, I ain't never heard of it. So enlighten me. Okay. So the subtitle, it's called The Reason for the Darkness of the Night. And the subtitle of the book is Edgar Allan Poe and the Forging of American Science. And what it is, it's a wow. new biography of Edgar Allan Poe interwoven with a study of his connection to the scientific community and how much science meant to him. And so it talks about his life 
I think in totality, it calls it a, a, a biography, but it also takes pains to mention that at the very end of his life, he gave this, what, what is described as kind of a mind-blowing lecture about science. I, I wish I could remember where, in which he introduced all these profound ideas. And he was not a scientist by trade. He was kind of a hack, you know, like he just was very yeah. interested in science and ideas. And he gave this, it's described as a kind of like an incredible lecture that people were like really blown away by. And then he tragically lost his life at a young age. So it's a, what looks like a really fascinating new study of Edgar Allan Poe and his literary work, as well as his connection to science and the world of science ideas at the time that he lived. So I can't, it's by a guy named John Tresh, T-R-E-S-C-H. I can't wait to read it. So wow. that's what's next yeah. for me. I hadn't heard anything about that. That should be fascinating on many levels. Um, I think he's Edgar Allan Poe is a Baltimore native, I think, or lived in Baltimore. Hence your favorite team, the Baltimore Ravens. Um, but <laughs> No comment. Yeah, you already mentioned you're a Steelers fan, so. You know, people know how that's going to go. No, but uh, he he has a connection to the city of Baltimore, so that's kind of interesting. Maybe you'll read about Baltimore at the time. But, no, I, I don't know anything about that book, and it sounds really amazing, you know? Yeah, I'm so, really looking forward to it. So I'll, I'll fill you in. All right. So uh, lastly, tease we did at the beginning of the show, episode 34 coming up next, we're going to do return to our occasional series, which is called BXC Reviews. And we're going to review a novel from the late 1980s. It's called A Prayer for Owen Meany. We brought it up at the beginning. And uh, it's a book that I read um, almost 30 years ago and remembered for many reasons. And I always had been curious as to whether I could get John to read the book and how he would take it. And especially now when, you know, I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds, but John's a, a close reader and he's tends to be somewhat more critical on certain kinds of novels than I am. This is a big novel with that goes off in lots of different directions. So I think mm -hmm. it was, uh, it's ripe for a good discussion and we're both working through it now. And it's certainly a memorable book. So if you've read Owen Meany, a lot of people like A Prayer for Owen Meany. A lot of people don't like A Prayer for Owen Meany, but if you're familiar with the book or if you've read it, you're going to want to tune in for a, a rousing discussion of that novel by John Irving. So that's what's coming up next. Yeah, and I brought up Stephen King before who blurbed this uh, Chuck Klosterman book, but he he's a famous proponent of this book, of the novel Prayer for Owen Meany. I mean, his his praises are all over my the jacket of the one that I'm reading, but I know that this is, I've heard him talk about it before. I think he was a huge fan of it. I think he reviewed it in the New York Times when it came out or something. But So that's sort of interesting, too. Um but yeah, we'll save that for the next episode. It should be a really, you know, different and interesting, you know, rabbit hole that we're going to go down there with Mr. Mr. John Irving. So look yeah. forward to that one. All right. Well, that's going to do it, John. So we'll, we'll shut it off here. And thanks for another rousing discussion. It was really interesting. And uh, enjoy the rest of what remains of your weekend. Yeah, I will do. Thanks a lot. Good discussion. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Book Exchange podcast. Take care, everyone. See ya.